Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Question. How does one define a good American? It seems like this is a question the nation's been asking itself right now, especially in the midst of all the immigration discussion. Now, I don't want to jump into that heated debate, but if we were to look at the nation's immigration policy as it sits right now, we would see that there is a citizenship test that is part of the process to become an American citizen. As part of this process, there is a verbal exam given. There exists a list of 100 questions, and the soon-to-be citizen is asked 10 questions from this list. So just for fun, I'm going to give you all this verbal citizenship test right now. I found a, a study guide uh, video, actually, on YouTube, and I pulled questions from that video, and I picked some of the harder ones because we should know all these answers, right? And so, uh, by the way, you need to get six questions right to pass the test. So without further ado, we start with an easy one. What ocean is on the east coast of the United States? And you can just answer quietly to yourself in your head. Keep track on your fingers how many you get right. The answer, of course, is the Atlantic, okay? Next one, a little harder. What are two cabinet-level positions? There's a lot to choose from. The video encouraged that they remember these specific two. The Secretary of Defense is Secretary of Agriculture. Also in there is the Vice President of the United States, basically the whole uh, board that uh, advises the President. So you could have picked any two of those. Okay, next one. How many justices are on the Supreme Court? Looking for a specific number there. Answer is nine. Another number question for you. How many, or we elect a president for how many years? Four. A similar question is, in what month did we elect him? And, and that, of course, is November. The next one. Who was president during World War I? Now, some of you might remember this a little easier than others. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be funny, but thank you for laughing. Uh, so if you remember, Woodrow Wilson, okay? Next one. If both the president and the vice president can't serve, who becomes president? Yeah, I heard Pelosi in there, Speaker of the House, that's right. There we go. What is the name of the national anthem? Star-Spangled Banner. When was the Constitution written? We're looking for a specific year here. When was the Constitution written? Did any of you have 1787? That's when it was written. All right. Another number question. The House of Representatives has how many voting members? Hmm. You're digging back to those civics classes. 435. A similar question is uh, how many senators are there? That's an easier one to remember. There's 100 for that. All right, and now here's our last question. What are two rights in the Declaration of Independence? Remember, this was written before the Constitution, which includes the Bill of Rights. little clue here, too. There are three of them. You just need two of them. Answer, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
These are called unalienable rights, which the Declaration says has been given to all humans by their creator and which governments are created to protect. So I hope you got six of those answers correct. But focusing on that last question, did, did any of you know that the original rough draft of the Declaration of Independence, instead of the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, was actually life, liberty, and property. Now there's been some debate as to why it was changed to the pursuit of happiness. One prevailing thought is that Thomas Jefferson, the original writer of the Declaration, was known as an Epicurean, something I learned recently, which is someone who subscribes to a philo philosophical doctrine that teaches that the pursuit of happiness means prosperity, thriving, and well-being. So to Jefferson, they basically meant the same thing. Now, historically speaking, like I said earlier, the Declaration of Independence came before the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And so one might say that this phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is what it means to be a good American, as long as you ascribe to these three unalienable rights. But could that be it? Maybe you had answered my initial question of how does one define a good American in a different way? Maybe you defined it as someone who upholds the Constitution or as someone who believes in and champions freedom. Well, you don't have to be an American to do that. Maybe it's someone who's, who's patriotic or, or nationalistic, though some in today's culture would call you a bigot and a racist if you think that. Some might say, being a good Christian makes you a good American. After all, America is a Christian nation, isn't it? It could be argued that America was founded on Christian ideals. Well, if someone today looked at America and used what they saw today to define Christianity, it does not bode well for looking favorably at Christianity. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not okay to be proud to be an American or to be thankful that you're an American. But if we stick to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or in Jefferson's view, the pursuit of property, thriving, or thriving and well-being as the source of happiness, then one can define a good American as a good consumer. A good American is someone who is up to their eyeballs in debt, who contributes to the economic well-being of this country, who buys and buys and buys some more. For a time in my life, that was the very definition of who I was. Maybe that's who you once were. Maybe that's who you are right now. You see, there was a time in my life when I had a disposable income. And dispose of it, I did. Readily. <laughs> it was the year that I had dropped out of college. I was single and for the first time in my life, working full time. So I spent my money. I went skydiving, I bought electronics, I got unnecessary food and beverage. And according to the American dream, I should have been leading my best life. I was kind of feeling like the rich fool in Jesus' parable. I had ample goods, I was making more money than I needed, and I, I too wanted to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
And as we look harder at the text, we can see this man, this rich fool, he was doing with his crops what, what any normal person would do. You can't just let abundant crops sit out and rot. So yeah, let's make bigger barns and let's, let's enjoy the fruit of our labor. And why not enjoy the good life after working so hard? He's earned it, hasn't he? Well, then why? Why is God calling this man a fool? Notice here that calling someone a fool is no small insult. When the word fool is used in scripture, it isn't just calling somebody a dummy. In fact, very intelligent people can be called fools. Because it doesn't depend on academic prowess or, or a high IQ score. Rather, it is someone, uh, someone's called that when they lack understanding in God's wisdom. It's a strong language for someone who doesn't view things the way that God wants you to view them. And so I, I was a fool. I was someone who didn't view my possessions with godly wisdom. And I certainly wasn't rich toward God. I was hardly even attending church at that time. But it was during this time in my life that I took stock of my life one day at work. I was working second shift in a printing factory, uh, binding retirement literature for a certain company, which provided people with wealth solutions. That, that was the uh, tagline on the, printed on the cover. They provided them with wealth solutions, meaning they had wealth problems. They had too much wealth. It was a problem. And I can remember that specific day. While at the wire row binding machine I was operating, I was loading paper to be punched and later bound, and I can remember asking myself, is this all there is to life? Is this it? Is this what the rest of my life is going to be like? Had I been aware of what it says in Ecclesiastes, our Old Testament lesson for today, I would have quoted it for my life, specifically verses 22 and 23. It says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Even though I was making my money, I, I wasn't content with my life. I thought, this cannot be it. That is the conclusion that Jesus wants us to get to when it comes to our possessions and our work and our money. You see, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is concerned primarily here with the attitude toward possession. He addresses this with two imperatives, as in, it's imperative that you do this. He says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. In other words, be watchful and guard against every kind of greed and jealousy. Jesus is saying here that the improper attitude toward possessions is basing one's life on the insecure foundation of gathering more and more for oneself. And that leads to idolatry. The setting up of a God for yourself, looking to your stuff as the source of happiness, security, and 
preservation. Jesus goes on to say, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And the conclusion, the life story, the life lesson from this parable is, there's more to life than just our stuff. There's more to life than just consuming. More than just our vacations, our 401ks, our pensions, our golden parachutes, our nice cars, our beautiful homes, having the latest gadget or smartphone, or any other thing that we are tempted to brag about to our friends and our enemies. But life as a follower of Jesus should include the proper wisdom and attitude toward possessions and money that we use to get them. Paul helps us to know the right attitude in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 3.5, we are encouraged to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is what I, too, had to do during my year off when I was out living the American dream. I had struck out on my own, made the best life I could make for myself, and it was a sad hill of disappointment and heartache. And it was time to put to death all that was earthly in me. Now, I'm not saying from that moment on I was perfect. I, like everyone in this room, have, have tripped over my sinful condition in my walk of faith. I have stumbled and I've fallen over and over again, but God continues to pick me up and he continues to pick you up and he, he dusts you off by forgiving our sins and, and he helps us walk this road that he's given us to walk. God doesn't want us to be a rich fool like in the parable. So what? Does this, mean, does this text mean that we, that we shouldn't be rich, that we shouldn't have money? That life can only be barely making it from paycheck to paycheck? No. But this lesson from Jesus teaches us where to find our reliance. Where do we find confidence for the future? And our security is not in our stuff, but it's in God and the richness of his grace. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, God is the giver of all things, including life and salvation and forgiveness. Because of Jesus on the cross, we who were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, in our selfishness, and our greed, we who relied on ourselves, making our own money and our own things the idols of our worship, we are the very ones for whom Jesus died. And his love was richly and lavishly poured out for us when Jesus' Jesus's blood poured out from the cross. Jesus' parable about the rich fool ends like this. He says, so, it is, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We can work and work and work, and we can save 
and save and gather and accumulate wealth and prestige and earthly respect and honor. But in the end, it's all for naught. Because in the end, we all still die. And so it's important to approach life with godly wisdom and to approach our possessions with godly wisdom and to be rich toward God. But what might that look like? Well, as Jesus goes on to explain and teach about the parable in the, in the following verses, he addresses anxiety, which can be a trigger for acting with greed. He tells people not to worry about what they'll eat or what they will wear. And the way I understand this is on a spectrum. If greed is on one side of the spectrum, then in the middle I would put contentment. Stop worrying about these things and be content with what God gives. And for some, it will be a challenge to move from greed to contentment. God knows your heart way better than I do. And perhaps being content with what God gives to you is a goal you have in your life. And that's a very fine goal indeed. It's certainly one worth striving after. But if you already feel content in your life, well, then let me challenge you even more, because on the spectrum, if greed is on one side, then on the other side, I would put generosity. Jesus says in Luke 12, 33 and 34, he says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I believe that is what Jesus had in mind when he taught about being rich toward God. Because one who is rich toward God will understand and use their possessions according to God's wisdom. See, life is more than getting newer and better stuff than your neighbor. And when we have the right relationship to our money and possessions, that, that helps us have the right relationship also with our God. When we use our money and possessions according to God's wisdom, not only do, do we bring glory to his name and what we do, give away with a generous heart, but we might also help bring somebody closer to God. I'll close with this. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God grant this in your life and in mine. Amen.